I'm going to be talking about how to share your faith with postmoderns, and I'm not going to be talking about the philosophical postmodernism. That's a whole other area, Derrida, and we could get into philosophical concepts. But I'm dealing with the concepts that are out there in the everyday world, the friends that you know, and how you can go about sharing your faith effectively with people who sometimes think very differently from you. Now, as a reminder, two things about postmoderns. Number one, they reject what? Truth claims. You can have truth for yourself, but it doesn't apply to everybody else. They reject certainty. So that's the first part, reject truth claims and certainty. And then secondly, they focus on their personal feelings or intuition and what brings, what's that key word? Meaning. Meaning. So let's do a quick quiz if you were in the last section. Pre-modern people, who gives them truth? The guru, the guru right? Modern people, who gives them truth? Books. Books. Gutenberg, right? And then postmodern people, where do they get their truth? Internet, Internet Google, and what it, how I feel. Uh, when you're thinking about this, it's kind of like saying, let me take in the modernistic paradigm, I would, I would give you the whole apple and dissect it and have you, have you eat the whole apple and it represents the whole apple. In the postmodern paradigm, when I give you truth, it's like I'm giving you little segments of an orange and I'm saying, eat this little segment and see what you think. Do you like it or not? Uh, so you're not getting the whole picture, you're just getting a little slice, a little piece. And you find out what meaning there is for you in it. Now let's think about how we do traditional evangelism and compare it with the postmodern person. So they get a little flyer in the mail and um, it's got one of these scary beasts. Somebody who wasn't a very good graphic artist was involved in this one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, this beast is coming out of the sea and they look at it. What's the likelihood that they're going to come to your meeting? What, what are they going to think? of the church that sends this out? You're a cult or you're f just fanatical? You're fascinated with beasts? What kind of strange people are you? So now we have two choices. We can adjust our evangelistic meetings so that they don't look like this. Or we can simply say these people are not going to come out uh, to these kinds of meetings, so we may as well go ahead and attract the people who will come to understand prophecy. Now, I've, I've gone through different phases, and I've tried to do a postmodern evangelistic meeting. It was hugely a failure. <laughs> I mean, people don't come out, no matter what kind of advertising I use, to an event at a Seventh-day Adventist church to learn about Bible prophecy if they're a postmodern person in general. And when they do come, they get frightened away after one or two nights. So I realized if I'm going to do this, I may as well do this and attract the people who will come out. And beasts do bring people out. I'm not saying you always need to use ugly beasts like this. But you bring up prophecy symbols, you are going to get a crowd. And I said, when I'm doing an evangelistic meeting, I'm going to preach prophecy. Does that sound good? I'm just going to go ahead and preach the prophecy because who am I going to get? I'm going to get moderns or pre-moderns. I'm not going to get postmoderns. But then what am I going to do about the, the postmoderns? Do I just forget about them? You guys are all heretics anyway. Find burn in hell then. Uh, <laughs> is that what I'm going to do? No, I, no, I've got to have Jesus' love for them. Uh, so I've looked through postmodernism and I've thought through my postmodern friends, including my own experience. Remember I said I'm a recovering postmodern. And I've thought through my own experience, and I've looked at the literature, and I've come up with some things that help us to understand who postmoderns are. And the first point is this. Postmoderns want to, what's the key word? Belong. Belong before they believe. Now, that's not how we do traditional evangelistic meetings. What do we do? We advertise. We come and we teach them doctrines. And then when they get to the end of the doctrines, we say... Now, how many of you want to belong? Isn't that how we do it? Well, that's how we do it traditionally. But is that going to work for postmoderns? No, they're going to work the opposite way around. They need to belong before they believe. So I was thinking back, friends of mine who are postmodern who have ended up becoming Seventh-day Adventists. And you know what? Sometimes they would attend church 
for a year without making any decision. That's even how I was. I, I went to a Seventh-day Adventist church at the age of 14, being somewhat postmodern, not completely, and I attended for a whole year and a half before I finally decided to get baptized. Because first I wanted to be part of the community, and then later on I said, by the way, what do you guys believe? And they said, well, you don't know what we believe. You be we better give you Bible studies. Okay, that's the way you do it. Because I wanted to continue belonging. But I belonged first. Does this make sense to everyone? So when you have that perspective, then you can see why we need community. Now, I'm quoting here from Russell Burrell, a great book called The Revolutionized Church of the 21st Century. And it's about the need for small groups in the church. I'm just going to give you a quick overview of my opinion. We don't know how to do church. We know how to run programs. We're very good at running programs. Yeah, we come to Sabbath school, you know, and we put on a whole program. And it's great. We are, we are incredible at programs at that age. Later on, we're not very good at them. But we know how to do programs for kids. So when we bring up the kids, they don't really know community. What they know is a program. I go to a program. So what, what have we drilled into Seventh-day Adventist minds? What does church mean? Attending a program on Sabbath morning. Then you can check it off. I went to church. Check. But a postmodern person walks in and says, this is so cold. You know, what is this all about? I just sit here like a spectator or some kind of tater. And I'm looking, <laughs> and I'm looking at the preacher and I'm going, there's no connection here. You know, I, I'm just not feeling it. What's the meaning here? And so look at what Russell Burrell says in his book, The Revolutionized Church. He says, the purpose of our evangelism is to make people doctrinally correct. No, no, no. I'm reading from the uh, revised perverse version. <laughs> the purpose of our evangelism is to bring people into community. If all we do is bring people to a knowledge of salvation and truth, but fail to bring them into community, we have failed in our Christian mission. Here again, the Apostle John is in agreement with Jesus and Paul. The church is not a building. It is not a creed. It is a fellowship. One of the little activities I like to do with my classes is I have them all close their eyes. I'm not going to do it this afternoon because you'd fall asleep. But I have them close their eyes and they go into different rooms. And like I take them into, in their mind's eye, they walk into this house with different rooms. And the first room is like an African-American room, and then a Native American room. And eventually I lead them into a church room. And I ask them to look at what's in each of those rooms. And then when we get to the end, I say, open your eyes and let's talk about it. And then in the African-American room, I say, what did you see? And they all see like, you know, Obama or Jesse Jackson or something like that. I say, how come none of you saw me? I'm from Africa and I'm an American. I'm African-American. They all laugh. And then I say, what about Native American? And they all have some guy with his little charms on the wall and he's sitting cross-legged and he's, he's dressed in a loincloth. I said, how many of you saw somebody in a suit? Do Native Americans wear suits? Well, yeah. <laughs> and then they recognized that they had seen this in their mind's eye ahead of time, and it determined what, the, what it was going to happen. And then I said, all right, the church room, what did you see? Guess what they see in the church room? They see pews, and they see people singing. They see a program. They see a building. I said, how many of you were more focused on the building than the people? number of hands will sheepishly go up said this is exactly the problem that many of us have come to see church as a building instead of a fellowship so when we say we join the church we talk about i joined the institution instead of i joined this neat group of people where we could all share a common faith and a common desire and we could really be honest about what's going on in our lives would you even dare to be honest with your sabbath school group about what was going on in your life or would it be like one of those uh, those church groups where everyone was going and sharing their sins, you know, it's terrible. I I slept with with my neighbor's wife. <gasps> and then the next person said, Yeah, it's terrible, but I stole money from the IRS. <gasps> you know, and they're going through the whole group and then finally the last person says, It's terrible, but my sin is gossip and I can't wait to get out of this room. <laughs> well, well the problem is is that we don't feel safe in church, right? And because we've made it a spectator sport, 
We don't really feel like we can have community. And what we learned from postmoderns is that they desire to do what? Belong. They want to belong. They want to be part of a group that they can be real and open with. Now, let me ask the positive side. How many of you have belonged to a group of friends where you have really felt you could be honest and open with them? Wasn't it phenomenal? You know, to be in that kind of camaraderie. Now, I know issues come up and things happen. But that kind of camaraderie where you could share and pray with each other and it was real. I mean, isn't that what Jesus called us to? When he called the disciples, he called them into community. Come be part of this group. He even washed his betrayer's feet. How would you have felt? This guy is going to go and betray you from the closest circle you have. One of your friends, he's going to betray you and it's going to lead to the crucifixion and death. And you still get down and wash his feet. I mean, if I was Jesus, I'm just being honest, I would have been like, yeah, you know, you know, do something to it, you know, <laughs> poke him or something. But he doesn't. He washes his feet and he takes care of him because that's what community does. It even loves people who are different from us. Now, how many of you have real community? Still remember the day I brought a homeless man to church and how everybody ignored him. Or the time I was preaching an evangelistic series, and we had these four people without teeth. You know, they didn't have to worry about the weeping and gnashing of teeth because they had that <laughs> taken care of. And, and they had no teeth. They were poor people coming to my series. Great people, wonderful people. And when they get to the church, we have the special luncheon where all of our guests can come. Nobody talks to them, not a single person, because they're different from us. How do we relate to them? But real community attracts postmodern people. So there's something here. When they see rich and poor, black and white, red, yellow, pink, green, whatever it is, when they see everybody coming together and worshiping together, and there's real community and they care about each other, it does something for a postmodern person. And then they say, we want to find out what you believe. Now, of course, this is built off of Christ's method. You know this quote. Christ's method alone will give which success? True success in reaching the people. What did the Savior do? He mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy, not fake sympathy, but real. Can we, uh, there's some chairs over here. Feel free to come in and there's some on the edge. And uh, we don't want you to be left out because we believe that you need to belong. <laughs> All right. So he ministered to their needs. So he's mingling, he's sympathizing, he's ministering, he's winning their confidence and only... Then does he say, follow me? In other words, he says, look, I want you to feel part of my community, and then I'm going to call you to make a commitment. I was a, the director of the Amazing Facts College of Evangelism. Any of you heard of that? So I was the director, and I decided to show my students that I was going to invite all my neighbors over. We were going to have a big Bible study. So we made you know, like a batch of cookies, and we had juice, and I told my students, you... I, I, I had a group of seven students in a smaller group, and I said, you come over, kind of see how it's done. <laughs> and I uh, went to the neighbors one by one, knocked on their doors and said, we're having this Bible study. We want to invite you to come along. It's going to be great. Come join us. Notice they were kind of looking a little strangely at me because I'd only been in the neighborhood two weeks. But uh, I sat there that night, had the, the juice out and the cookies, and my students arrived, and we waited. We waited for my neighbors, who I knew were just busy finishing supper, and they'd be right along. Just waited. Uh, maybe the kids were delaying them. Waited, waited. Eventually, my students ate the cookies. They were still happy. But I was kind of embarrassed. Oh, man. Here I've had this whole Bible study. No one came. Why is that? We didn't have a relationship. So all of these postmodern people out there that I was trying to connect with, I come up to them and say, hey, come and have a freaky Bible study in my house. And they're not going to connect with that because what kind of person are you? Where are you from? What's your background? We have no relationship. Now, I learned after that to build a relationship. And as a result, we did get a Bible study going, but only when we had built a relationship. And they laughed about it afterwards. Yeah, we thought you were kind of strange when you knocked on our door and said, come to a Bible study. And that was the first time we'd ever met you. Take a look at how this quote continues. You know, we read this quote, but we never read the context. It's found in the book, Ministry of Healing. Healing, and it actually has to do with medical missionary work. Does anyone know that was the context of the quote? 
So here it is. If less time were given to, oh man, that's taking away my job. And more time was spent in what? Personal ministry, greater results were to, would be seen. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted. We are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that, that rejoice. You are to mingle, sympathize, and minister. I mean, is it that difficult? See a need. Be there for people. Pay attention. That means you should be able to list hell-bent unbelievers among your closest friends. Have, I mean, celebrate the fact that you have a pagan unbeliever in your group of your closest friends. I mean, isn't that what it's meant to be about? Isn't that what Jesus did? He ministered to them. Now, he had a closer, closer network that was just him and his disciples. But even some of them were kind of strange. So uh, we need to be ministering and we need to be caring about the world. And notice the service component and the reaching out for others. So what would this look like? I'm spending the most time on this point because it's the most important. Over here, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to make friends. So that's the first thing we're going to do. Just make friends. Nice and easy. Then we're going to win their confidence. That's what it tells us in the quote. Building confidence through ministering to their needs, through being, being there for them. Then we're going to invite them to follow Jesus, belong to Jesus. Come and join us. Come. We're going to give a gospel presentation at some point. And then we're going to teach them discipleship. Now notice how this is different from the way we normally do it. Here we are teaching them to belong, and then we're teaching them to believe. Can you see that cycle? Belong and then believe. Now that's different from an evangelistic series, because in an evangelistic series, first we teach them to believe, and then we ask them to belong. But that's never going to work with a postmodern. You agree? Yeah, and so I've seen those people who came in through belonging. Postmoderns tend to eventually say, I really like this church. What do you guys believe? It's, uh, it's confirmed by Campus Crusade for Christ. They've dropped the word crusade. And, um, and uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship did an examination of how people who were postmodern became Christians. Now, I want you to see what they came up with. Firstly, they trusted a Christian. Can you see that winning confidence? And then they became curious about God. They opened up to change. They started seeking after God, and only then did they enter the kingdom. Notice how long this process is. You know, just curiosity. Where is this at? They start to become more open. You know, I'm, I'm interested in that. They start to look for God, and then they make a faith step where they say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, I would say after this comes more of the doctrinal beliefs that obviously they haven't fully figured out here. The point, they say, is not to create a checklist, but awareness of a gradual process rather than a specific evangelism event. See, this moves us away from evangelism as an event to evangelism as a process, as a cycle. We don't just do an event, but we slowly bring people along. Some have called it a receptivity scale. People initially are, are not only neutral, they're actually against God. You know, so some of them are like that. And you slowly move them along. If you bring an evangelistic series, the only people who come are people who are really excited about God. Threes, fours, fives, plus three, plus four, plus five. They're excited. But over on the other scale, end of the scale, are people who are minus five. They just don't want anything to do with it. So when you hold an evangelistic meeting, who are the only people who come? These people right over here. So how are you going to get these people to ever attend an evangelistic series? You have to build a friendship that's going to help them slowly move across the way. Look for moments of opportunity when they go through a crisis and they say, I've always wondered what happens to people who die. And then you're going to gradually introduce them to Jesus Christ and you're going to include them in social events. How many of you invite people who are unlike you to, into your social circle? At least a few. The three people who are awake. So <laughs> you need to be bringing them along slowly to where they get to the point where they say, I would like to find out more about Jesus. That means that patience is extremely important when working with secular people. To move from a totally secular environment into a traditional Adventist environment is not going to happen in two to three weeks. Would you agree? In my experience, the process takes at least two years in most cases. That's John Pauline. 
So, man, I looked at this and I said, how am I going to reach out to people? And I realized I've got to begin with friendship. So one of my neighbors, when I was at Amazing Facts, was an FBI agent. By the way, told me a fascinating story about how uh, they've changed their techniques. They don't do waterboarding anymore. Um, he, was, he was describing to me how even the FBI's figured out you can't force a person to convert. <laughs> so what, what he would do is he would sit a person down and give them, give them stuff to drink and in a nice leather armchair and say, relax, you know. We just want to sit down and talk to you. And he'd talk to him about his family. And the guy would start opening up about his family. And then he, when he talked about his mom, the FBI agent guy, by the way, you're not supposed to tell this to anyone because you'll get shot. <laughs> the, I'm kidding. He said it's okay now, I think. So the FBI agent guy says, says to him, man, you'd really love to see your mom, wouldn't you? Guy starts crying. Yeah, I'd love to see mom. What? what would happen if, if, if we could let you go free today and you could walk back in and hug your mom? How would that feel? Guy starts crying, starts blabbing everything. And then he has to tell me, and actually I don't have the power to do that. Can't <laughs> set you free. It's terrible. But anyway, welcome to information intelligence. But what they figured out in the FBI is you had to build a, a relationship. And I used that same tactic on my FBI friend. <laughs> I built a relationship. I got him to relax. He was very scared of Adventists. And I got him to relax, and we built this great friendship, and we still stay in contact to today. And he has been slowly embracing the Christian truths. Can you say amen? amen. My own brother, postmodern, kind of God is out there, who cares? I start, I start sharing information with him. It's only when he went through a crisis, my my sister-in-law was driving along. She saw a donkey beside the road. And she said, let me stop and give that donkey some water. She turned around and she turned in front of an oncoming bus. The bus went into the car. The car rolled. She was thrown out of the car. And she became overnight a quadriplegic. And, so, and she still can't. She can't have any movement other than the arms. No tactile movement. Nothing below. And so, you know, she was like, how could this happen? My brother was mad. But just through that time period, because I was there for him, because I cared for him, and I spent time with him, and we talked through issues. When he went through that crisis, it ended up bringing him close to God. And he ended up saying, you know what? I need to try that God thing. And we, we are dialoguing, and he called me up one day, and he said, you won't believe what's happened, but I've accepted Jesus Christ into my life. Man, how exciting. You know how many years it was? Six years. Six years. So this is not a two-week event. I tried to get him out to a revelation seminar. He came one night. He said, that's boring. What are you guys doing? You're just waffling away in front there. There's no relevance to my life. Thanks. <laughs> so, so first thing, what did we say? Postmoderns want to belong before they believe. Our most important point. Secondly, postmoderns experience their faith as a means to engage in theology. Now, you've got to put your mind around that. We typically teach theology. Like what I'm doing with you does not work with postmoderns. Isn't this kind of wacky? <laughs> Teaching you about postmodernism in a very modernistic way. <laughs> if we really wanted to, to do this in a postmodern way, I'd have you experience it. So how do you experience a doctrine? Instead of teaching people about the Sabbath, you have them experience the Sabbath. Duh. You know, that's, that's Jesus' method. He had people experience salvation, experience healing, and that's what they, they need. And here's the reason why. We live in an information-saturated age, and Adventists preach the truth. And what happens when you preach the truth is it goes in one ear and out the other when they're really thinking about other questions like, why on earth am I, am I here? Um, what's in it for me? What's the meaning? What does this have to do with my life? Here is what uh, Brett Lawrence says in Starbucks Spirituality. He says, I've never been able to persuade someone intellectually to abandon the relativistic or postmodern mindset. Would you agree? It's not like an intellectual concept. Oh, yeah, I get it. That's never the doorway I get someone to walk through. What's more likely to happen is that they will, what? See the power of a transformed life in another Christ follower and be transformed. They've got to see your theology in order to believe it. 
Now, you, you say this is common sense, but it's not because this is not how we do evangelism. We sit people down and we explain concepts. Instead, bring people alongside of you. Um, Jesus did this very effectively through two systems. One was, what is that on the right? The sanctuary. What happened in order for them to understand salvation? They experienced it. They saw the lamb throat being cut. And I, I've always wanted to do that in an evangelistic meeting, but my wife has prevented me <laughs> because she was afraid of the impact on our kids. So, but imagine seeing a lamb slain for your sins. Does that have a certain impact on you? Yeah, so you experience it. Uh, they, they smelt the incense and they realized their prayers were ascending to heaven. They saw the stormy clouds and they realized God was present. So how would we do that today? How would we experience theology today? Number one, we would actually have physical, tangible experiences for people to go through. We would take people on mission trips. Wouldn't you agree? We would, uh, I mean, some, some churches get carried away. They like put sand in the fellowship hall and then you kind of, so that you can feel like you're back in the Middle East and you're walking on the sand. Well, that's maybe going too far. But I think that there are some things we can use far more object lessons so that people can see it. They can say, wow, I get it. And you know, it's okay to burn incense as long as you're not caught up in the like new age kind of thing. But it's okay for people to sense like, to, to show people practically, look, your prayers are ascending to heaven. You need to recognize this. Demonstrate to people, use PowerPoint, use visuals so that they can see things. Another way that Jesus did this effectively was through parables. He would tell the story of this father and how he would run and embrace his son. When they saw the picture, they understood the theology. You get the idea? When they saw, Je when they saw that father running, they understood Jesus cares, uh, they understood Jesus cares about me, the father cares about me. My picture of God has been wrong. So he changed their understanding through story. And that's why one of the most effective ways you can reach postmoderns is by telling stories. The sto which story do you think is going to be the most powerful? Your testimony. And word pictures. So my wife is great at this. When she's explaining anything, she will, she will tell me a word picture because she's like high in emotional intelligence or something. So she will, she will say it's like this, and she'll tell me about a poor little doggy and how it's out in the rain. And then I recognize, oh, the doggy is her, and I haven't been treating her right, something like that. <laughs> the problem is my daughter's becoming postmodern because the other day she says to me, Daddy, when you say no, it's like this, and she gets the salt shaker, and I forget what else was on the table, the ketchup bottle. She says, this is me and this is you. And when you tell me no, no, then I feel like I'm so sad and I pour little tears out. She pours salt onto the table. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get where you're coming from. But isn't that what postmodern people can relate to? The pictures. How many of our sermons are pictures? How much of our sharing of our faith is in picture form? What do most people watch these days? Movies. And so they're used to seeing things in diagrammatic form. And I'm going to show you how you can use that. Here's uh, from Annette Simmons, and she says this. People don't want more information. They're up to their eyeballs and information. What they want is faith. Story is your path to creating faith. Telling a meaningful story means inspiring your listeners to reach the same conclusions you have reached and to decide for themselves to believe what you say and do what you want them to do. So when they hear a story, they get involved in the story. They get emotionally involved. People value their own conclusions more highly than yours in a postmodern generation. They will only have faith in a story that has become real for them personally. Once people make your story their story, you have tapped into the powerful force of faith. So what story can you give? your personal story. So when I tell people, look, I was a motorcycle riding uh, crazy guy out there in the field. I mean, I, um, I knew how to swear like a trooper. I lived a life that was totally secular. They're like, nah, you didn't live that kind of life. I'm like, really? The leather jacket, the whole thing? I did that. And they're like, well, okay, if you say so. 
But then I start telling them what Jesus did in my life. And, and I start explaining to them my story because they will believe in a local story. And they start connecting with that and saying, wow, I can see how your theology works. I can see how it makes sense. So that also means reading the Bible differently. The Bible is presented as a collection of what? Stories and poems and chronicles and personal letters. Even the Apostle Paul, the most preeminent theologian, uh, let's see, of the apostolic age, an author of two-thirds of the New Testament, did not present a theological argument when he was brought before the Jewish crowd at the temple in Jerusalem or before King Agrippa. Instead, this master theologian and apologist presented his personal testimony. He says, how am I going to relate to a king? You didn't know that Paul was postmodern, did you? He says, I'm going to tell him a story, the story of my life. See, this is how I used to be. I persecuted the Christians. But one day on the road to Damascus, I met Jesus. And it totally changed my life. Yes? Yeah, what about if you don't have the dramatic story? I once used to be a drug dealer and five people died because of me. And now, praise the Lord, I've been saved. Then, then your story is how God has saved you from ever doing those kinds of things. I mean, isn't that powerful? Much better than... You know, like I would much rather my daughter say, you know, I was in the valley of temptation and praise be to God. Jesus came in and helped me. That's so much more powerful than like, man, I went and did all of those bad things and then I came back. You know, but it, it's not as dramatic. And that's why we're more interested in dramatic. Yes. That's right. So we can relate to people inside the church. It can be hard sometimes on this campus for people to relate to me because I didn't grow up Seventh-day Adventist. So they're like, well, you don't fully understand where we're coming from or what it's like to live with parents who tell you how to do everything. My dad was telling me, hey, you know, why don't you go out and drink and have a fun time? You're studying your Bible too much. So that's not typically what Adventist parents say. So that is different and somebody who has gone through that experience may have a more powerful testimony to people who are like that yes good point so we have to also when we're telling the gospel we have to we have to tell the gospel story differently in the traditional gospel we deal with an individual person's guilt but we don't deal with evil as a whole so typically what do we say we say will you accept jesus christ into your life. He's got a plan for your life. He's going to make you feel wonderful. If you're Joel Osteen, he'll tell you other things that God's going to do for you. So it's all about you. But in a postmodern world, they want to know, but this world is messed up and there's evil and there's suffering. What is God going to do about that? And so we tend to reduce the gospel to just what it does for me. Is that what the gospel was about? Did God send Jesus to take care of the whole sin and evil problem? Yes. So I like to use something called the four circles when I'm explaining the gospel. And that's like this. I, we begin over here. And you can, you can look this up on the internet if you want to see some more information. Is this world messed up? Would you agree? So people are kind of angry and living apart from each other. And you can see these lines represent a messed up world. So this first circle shows that our world is messed up. Now... We desire something more. Would you agree? We, we don't want the world to be messed up. So when we desire something more, we say, that indicates that once upon a time, something better did exist. See, this world was originally designed for good. Right over here, these, uh, these people lived in harmony. We call them Adam and Eve. They lived in harmony, and every, everybody was good with each other. There, there was peace, and that's why there weren't any of these funny lines here. Just everybody got along really well. The problem was we messed up. We decided to live selfishly for ourselves. And so the world, instead of being designed for good, became damaged by evil. And so when we became damaged by evil, you know, what are we going to do now? We can't get back there and we live in this world and it could all be a mess. But God decided to do something about that. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to try and restore us and to, and to make us more like what we should be. Now, we still live in a messed up world. But we bring some peace and some harmony into our lives because of what Jesus has done. 
And so that was God's plan. He restored us for better. Now what he's doing is he's sending us to go on a mission for him. We've been sent together to heal the world. And uh, because of the cross now, each one of us can go out to heal this world around us. And that's what he's called us to do. So then when you've told the story, you say, now where are you? Are you, are you thinking the world is peachy and everything's great? Are you over here where, where life is really messed up and, and, it's, you know, and you don't like it at all, but you don't know what to do about it? Or you down here, Jesus has kind of stepped into your life, but you're not really doing anything for him. Or are you maybe trying to fix the world over here, but, but you're figuring out you can't do it on your own. You see, you can't just go directly from here to here because you don't have the resources to fix the world. So you need Jesus' resources in order to fix the world. And, and if you're over here just trying to make a difference and, and do good in the world, you may want to consider having Jesus in your life to give you the power to go out on a mission of peace for him. Does that sound very different from the way we've said the gospel before? But when you do that, do people connect with it? Another way of doing the gospel is to have pictures. And uh, there's a little app called God Tools that you can download. It has a set of pictures. If I had a later iPad, I could show it to you, but you'll have to give me a donation. So you can show people pictures and have them point to which pictures describe their life. And then they can tell you their story and you can introduce God's story. So, you know, they see a picture. Yeah, this is how my life is like now. This is how I'd like it to be. And then you say, well, you know, God has a way for you to achieve your dreams. All right. So next point, the first point we said people want to belong before they believe. Then we said, how do people relate to theology? They need to experience their faith as a means to engage in theology. Now, the third point Postmoderns value dialogue over monologue. And only because of audioverse have I done more monologue here. But typically, if we were in a classroom situation, we would be doing more dialogue. Now, what's the difference between dialogue and monologue? You answer back. Thank you, sister. All right. You haven't been worried. You'd all fallen asleep. So uh, here's what I've learned, uh, McLaren says, largely from Jesus' own example that one of the most important skills of spiritual friendship is learning to respond to questions with what? More questions. So instead of telling your friend what to think, you help your friend keep thinking. <laughs> That's always a valuable thing if you're a college student. I believe that as long as people keep thinking, they are giving God room to work in their lives. Now, this is really important. So when I'm engaging with a postmodern person, I don't come, oh, that's ridiculous. Let me show you how to lay it down. down. I'm going to introduce you to the 2300-day prophecy beginning in 457 B.C. because this was the third decree that was given to Ezra. And, and this is the most important decree. And then we're going to go forward uh, 69 weeks, and that's going to bring us to 27 A.D. And the guy's already checked out. So how are we going to introduce them? You ask them questions. Have you ever thought about, which is always a great, great way to start. You don't say, what do you think? But have you ever thought about whether Jesus' first coming was according to prophecy? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that God might have a specific plan for our lives? What do you think? What, what am I doing by that? I'm just getting them to think. You know, to, okay, let me process that. Jesus, prophecy, well, I mean, can you really trust that? Then you're getting into a good dialogue instead of just bang, bang, bang and uh, throwing data at them. They're not really interested in information. Uh, Carlos Martin, who works with me, uh, has a great uh, section in his book. It's called Ministry Among Secularized Urbanites. He says, engage secular people in dialogue. If conscious doubt, listen to this difference, not conscious guilt is characteristic of a secular population, authoritative preaching is not the best approach to the unchurched masses. Did you get that? Because authoritative preaching tries to awaken guilt. But if you are dealing with doubt, then you have to work with that doubt. I, I, I'm skeptical about anything. The speakers who get a hearing today engage in animated conversation to a street. The evangel evangelist is primarily listening, probing, sharing answers, and confessing faith. But he is also identifying with the struggler and sharing that he knows how doubt feels. 
So when I'm preaching to a postmodern audience, I don't, I don't preach away. I, I believe Jesus is this way and that way. No, 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 no. I engage in conversation. You know, I've struggled with this. We use the three Fs. I understand how you feel. I felt the same way. But here's what I found. You got those three Fs? So we just, we just engage with them. Look, I understand how you feel. I've struggled with that. Anybody here never struggled with doubt in their life? I was going to be very skeptical if you raised your hand. <laughs> but this is, a, this is what we should be sharing. A vulnerability awakens authenticity in the other person. So first one, we said they need to belong. Secondly, we said that they need to experience. Thirdly, we said that they value what? dialogue and lastly we're going to see that they find meaning as the way to discover truth that they say hey i i want to see what is the difference in this doctrine now i want to give you an example here the sabbath what is a traditional presentation on the sabbath what do we focus on Creation. you're looking at the picture that's a good guess <laughs> What are we interested in convincing them of? That, it's, that it has been changed. It has not been changed. But that there's been an attempt to change God's holy law. And that the seventh day Sabbath still applies to your life. So our focus is on the seventh. It is the seventh day. Which day is the Sabbath? The seventh day. So when we go through our presentation, we will often take them through this kind of format. First, we show them that the law is still valid and that God requires us to keep how much of His law? All of the law. No 10% discounts on the law, right? <laughs> then we show them the law has not been done away with, so you can't say it was nailed to the cross. Have, have you heard these kinds of presentations? All right, so that's what we do. Then the next night we come back and says, God says that we must keep the Sabbath and we want them to keep the Sabbath. And we show them that the Sabbath is part of the law of God, which means it hasn't been done away with. And since we are required to keep all of it, we are therefore required to keep the seventh day Sabbath. And that means we must obey God and keep his law, which means I'm making an appeal tonight. I'm making an appeal that you accept the seventh day Sabbath and begin keeping it. Mm -hmm. See, that's the appeal. Now, what's the problem here? What paradigms does this appeal to? Pre-modern said, what is the focus? Authority. So they said, we want, and can we see the authority in here? Who's the authority? God is the authority, and it comes through the Bible, which is the book of authority. Then in the modern paradigm, what's, what's the appeal to? Truth. Truth is, we want to find out what's true. So we go through, we lay it out in the Bible, and we discover what the truth is. So here we have laid out authority and truth. What is missing? Meaning. Where is the meaning of the Sabbath? You know, I've gone through entire presentations on the Sabbath. I've even preached them. <laughs> where I've never dealt with how do you keep the Sabbath. Isn't that terrible? Go through an entire presentation and never deal with how do you keep the Sabbath. Gone through an entire presentation and never said what a difference the Sabbath can make in your life other than to indirectly say if you obey God's commandments, He'll bless you kind of thing. So when we relook at the Sabbath, we have to say, what was the Sabbath really about? What was God intending when he put the Sabbath in a creation? And as we look at the creation story, we begin to discover the hidden meaning of the Sabbath. So you guys still with me? So the first day, what did God create? God said, let there be light. And there was light. Second day, God separated the waters above from the waters below. The atmospheric waters from, from the seas. Third day, God's, what did he create? The land. All right. The fourth day? The sun, moon, and stars. The fifth day? Birds and the fish. The sixth day? All, all of the animals on the land plus Adam and Eve. And then we have the seventh day. Now, I want you to pay attention to the structure of the story. So on the first day... We see that God created light. On the second day, the waters. On the third day, the land. Now notice what he does on the fourth, fifth, and sixth days. Yes, he forms the light on the first three days, on the first day. And on the fourth day, he fills that light with the sun, moon, and stars. You all get that? 
What, what's going to happen with the waters? The atmospheric waters above, the atmosphere, and the waters below. What are we going to get? Birds and fish, right? So he forms and then he fills. The land. What does he put with the land? Man and animals. Now, what about the Sabbath? What about the Sabbath? See, the Sabbath he does almost on its own, and it's like left hanging there. But uh, here's the Sabbath, seventh day of creation. He creates the Sabbath. And then when he creates the Sabbath, we're left hanging. He's formed it. What's he going to fill it with? Himself. He fills the Sabbath with himself. What makes the Sabbath holy? He does. Because isn't that what made the most holy place holy? Isn't that what made the burning bush holy ground? Was it, was it holy ground the day afterwards or the day before? No. It was the presence of God that made those things holy. So he forms the Sabbath and he fills it with himself. Why? Because he wants a relationship with us. Now, when I began thinking about the Sabbath, and, and this stuff I, I'm still thinking through because my idea is that we should take each one of our doctrines and rework each one of our doctrines to bring out the meaning instead of just the truth. I mean, I'm not against the truth and the authority, but I want to add the meaning. And I began to think about this new software available from Apple. All right. Yeah. You see, Steve Jobs will not leave me alone. All right. So when I began to think about this, I began to realize some things about the Sabbath, and I'm throwing some ideas out there. Now, I'm not going to share these as concepts. I'm going to live them out in my life and share them with other people through my experience. I began to think of how does the Sabbath answer this question of meaning and purpose? Who am I? Why am I here? And I, I came up with some ideas. The Sabbath is about resting from anxious striving. It reminds me that I exist to be and not to do. How many of you feel like during the week you're just doing all the time? Tests, exams, uh, professors who give you stuff to do. I can't stand those people. So, they, you know, there's this do, 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 do all the way through. And now suddenly on the Sabbath, I'm reminded that Adam and Eve had the Sabbath before they did anything. Maybe Adam named the animals. That was it. So I'm not talking about anything else that they did. I'm not even going there. So <laughs> they get to the Sabbath. And now they simply exist to be. God says, look, just hang out with me. I'm going to fill this day with my presence and we're going to spend time together. This is what I'm really about. My identity is not based on what I do, but it's based on God's presence in my life. Isn't that difference radical? Um, somebody once wrote Karl Marx needed to go to Sabbath school because he thought our identity was wrapped up in our physical goods that we produce. But he could have learned something from this, right? The Sabbath is a story of a love relationship that God wants with us. It is a date with God. You know, so when I think about that, and I think about, wow, God is calling me to spend time with him. It's all about this relationship. It's about, it's about enjoying God. Um, other things that came to mind. The Sabbath reminds me that I'm responsible for creation. And I was fascinated. You know, some I read the fourth commandment all these years and never realized the animals got to rest too. So the Sabbath reminds me that all of creation gets to rest. And I'm part of creation. I'm not like, I can't ignore the environment. The Sabbath reminds me to be an environmentalist. Can you say amen? amen. I mean, this, is, this speaks to, to our postmodern situation. And then the Sabbath is a grand feast, a festival of celebration that God invites us to. The Sabbath is one of the festivals. Now, I'm not saying it's the same as the other festivals, but it's called a festival. So what do you do on a festival? Adventists are good at this. Feast, feast yeah. <laughs> you, you celebrate. You suddenly celebrate and you admire what God has done. You know, there was a Jewish guy who came and visited the Andrews campus and has become part of the folklore there. Uh, he came and visited the campus and he spent a whole Sabbath there. He's a Jewish rabbi. End of the day, they said, so what did you think? You keep the Sabbath. Adventists keep the Sabbath. What do you think? He says, ah, there's a difference. Adventists keep the Sabbath. Jews celebrate it. So do we celebrate it? Do we experience that? And can we share this kind of truth with others? I mean, is Sabbath the best day of the week? And I, I try and experience this. So, for instance, Sabbath, Friday evening as we're getting ready for Sabbath, we take bubble bath. 
Now, I know this sounds wacky. And we pour it into the bath for my kids as a symbol of God's presence being poured into the day. And we pour in that bubble bath and we, and we say, enjoy yourselves, kids, because God is wanting you to celebrate and love his presence on the Sabbath day. Isn't that cool? Anyway, so they think it's cool. So we, we need to experience that. And I am going to just skip through to the end here. So you can see it all and I want to end with a story and then we'll be done all right it's still thinking I'm going on um, I was in Africa and I had a postmodern young person I was trying to reach out to and she she came to church and she was bored stiff because it was a program sat there she's fidgeting she was a hockey player and sitting in church was just deathly doubt she says you just sit and listen to someone talk why I never thought about that. <laughs> so I said, you're going to hear the word of God. I mean, but it was truth concepts. It wasn't that meaningful to her. How am I going to reach out to her? Well, that year, I'd just gotten married. And uh, that year, Nicole and I said, let's do something different. Let's go on Christmas Day to an AIDS orphanage. All of these kids are HIV positive. We're going to tell everybody in our circle to send us money instead of sending us gifts. And then we're going to send them a picture back and say, this is what we bought with your gift. Here's a picture of a kid. And so we got to this age orphanage, and there were like 40 kids, all HIV positive, the cutest kids you could imagine. But they're all going to die by the age of 10. It's just, it's just horrific in that sense. And I said to this girl, Mandy, I said, Mandy, come with us. I didn't know how else to get to her. She called our Bible studies. I was trying to get her baptized. She said, are these my swimming lessons? She just, yeah, she just didn't get it. So anyway, I said, come with us. Come experience it. So on Christmas Day, we went to this age orphanage, and, and those kids were so cute. As they were running around, they, um, the one little girl, we had a little play cell phone. She's walking on the cell phone, and someone else had given her a pair of high heel shoes. She's walking around on a cell phone with high heel shoes, only six years old, and it was just so cute. And we spent the day with them. We had a song service, and we prayed with them. As we were leaving, Mandy turns to me and says, now I'm ready to accept God. I had to see it before I could believe in it. And that's what I hope you'll be able to share with others. Let's pray. Father God, I, I ask that you help us to reach postmoderns in a real way, not just with concepts, and we've learned a lot of concepts, but, but by bringing them into community, by loving them, by sharing with them, by helping them to belong, helping them to experience, helping them to see it as real, and, and by showing the meaning of our doctrines instead of just in the logic and the facts. Thank you, Lord, that you can use us to make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.